Because our business model is hiring young people and turn them into famous scholars, or hope they become famous scholars as they get older, it's a good place to do research. But I think I got unusually lucky. I got that environment when it was tiny. The field was tiny. Most of the questions were unanswered, or if we had answers, they were like completely incorrect answers. The environment Douglas Diamond is describing is the University of Chicago, his home for over 40 years, where he tries to find theoretical explanations for real-world phenomena. His passion for economics, as you'll hear, developed early, sparked by an undergraduate course he took almost by chance, and that passion is still abundantly evident. So welcome to this conversation in which Douglas Diamond talks about the young science of financial economics. And yes, in his mind, it is definitely a science. I hope you enjoy it. This is Nobel Prize Conversations. Our guest is Douglas Diamond, who received the 2022 Economic Sciences Prize for developing theoretical models about the role of banks in financial crises, models that form the foundation of modern bank regulation. He shared the prize with Philip Dibvig and Ben Bernanke. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Arethas. Douglas Diamond is the Merton H. Miller Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at Chicago's Booth School of Business. He talks to Adam about the joys of working among researchaholics and learning to say no with the help of a rather rude electronic assistant. N-O. No! But first, he looks back on a memorable encounter during Nobel Week 2022. Let me start by asking, what was your best moment in Stockholm? Actually, my favorite one was on the second to last morning when I spoke to, it was called the high school, but I guess it's like a junior college, the people who are like one year past our high school in the U.S. Speaking to them, they asked interesting questions. They seemed truly excited by the topics. It was Ben and, and myself speaking there. That was actually my favorite thing. I was relaxed. They were very appreciative, and they were a bunch of, of interesting kids. That was my favorite. That's lovely. That was, the, I think, the busiest week of my life. I don't remember the week when I was born, but it's certainly up there of those two. Several of my friends and colleagues who'd won in the past warned me about pacing and making sure you use every free minute to put one's feet up and relax and well, that must be one of the blessings of being at the University of Chicago, that you're surrounded by people who've been through this before so they can yes, give you I tips. Have, yeah, I have three colleagues currently who are non-emeritus on the faculty who won in the last decade. They gave me a lot of advice and, and warned me of potential pitfalls in the, this process. Uh, maybe you can't reveal all the advice, but is there <laughs> one, one piece that springs to mind? <laughs> uh, well, basically, don't overbook yourself. Both of them told me, just don't put anything you don't have to in your schedule for the next six months and wait until you get to Stockholm and you've returned from Stockholm and uh, until you even think about it. And I've still followed that advice. I'm still putting the finishing touches on the paper version of my uh, prize lecture and my autobiography. So basically, when people ask me to do something, I say, get in touch with me in the month of March and I'll think about it. Is it an enjoyable process writing your autobiography? Uh, it is. 
I hadn't sort of thought through all of these things. I hadn't, there are certain things I hadn't tied together in my life until I sat down to you know, put them in some kind of uh, an order that, that made sense. I enjoyed that. I would have rather done it on a more leisurely basis. My mean time for writing a paper of any sort, start to finish, is around 15 to 18 months. So I wrote two of them in a month and a half now. Uh, <laughs> so it's a little off my normal, normal pace. That's a very interesting point about paper writing, because one would have thought that there was always the worry about being scooped and getting the information out there as fast as possible and to be so comparatively leisurely about it. Yeah, I, I put a strong premium on getting things more or less right or as right as I can get them. So being the first person to get it 80% right is not as good as being the, the second person to get it at least 80% and getting to 99% right. I mean, for empirical work, if you just present the data, if you don't analyze it quite right, people can still learn something. If you present a theory that actually doesn't follow from the assumptions you say it does, you're actually destroying knowledge rather than creating it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great responsibility. I did hear that um, Richard Taylor gave you a, a special bell. <laughs> yes, uh, it's called the Nobel. It's still in my office. Whenever I think about saying yes to something, I take a look at it. I don't have to push it as often as I did in the first few days. It basically says no more than 100 different ways. No, 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 and things like that. What are you thinking about? Forget about it. All those different things. So it's a little toy that he passed along. I think we'd dearly like to hear it. Uh, okay. Let me just look. Oh, I see it. Hold on. It says no with a big exclamation yes. mark. Yes, and then you push it. No. You can push it again, and you says... Lots of different ways of saying no. <laughs> so. Was that Richard Taylor's voice? Has he recorded this No, for you? no. This is something that someone gave to him. I think Danny Kahneman maybe gave it to him. Fantastic. Uh, he's in California in the, in the winter right now, so I tried to return. He says, no, no, you'll still need it a little more. Hold on to it. At least until the next round of announcement. Yes. 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 The art of declining firmly but politely. Yes, yeah. yes. So the University of Chicago has... I think you make it 33 laureates who they say are associated with the university in economics out of just 92 people who've been awarded. So that's about a third of awarded yes. laureates in economic sciences have associations with the university. So one has to ask, what is it about that place? So the interesting thing is, you know, they're sort of divided pretty equally between the Booth School of Business and the Department of Economics. And our cultures are a little different in the two areas. But the thing that both of us have is everybody takes the other faculty members' research very seriously. There's no notion that publishing papers is some kind of a game or a counting exercise. So we're all trying to do something that has an impact on the world in very, very different styles. And we read the papers, we all go to workshops, our name for seminars, and listen carefully to the other people's work and try to get it as clear and perfect as possible. Compared to other business schools, our senior faculty stay more or less as productive as our junior faculty. Often in many places, people slow down and get other interests besides doing scholarly research. So we all are sort of researchaholics here and work very hard on it and get a lot of pleasure out of, of research when it goes well. So I think that's probably the most important thing that explains why so many people here have done research that had lasting uh, impact. And I mean, I don't have a great model on how the prize committee for the economics prize chooses things, but it seems like lasting impact and 
other people either in the economics profession or in the real policy world using one's work. That seems to be the common trend of the people who they've picked. And that's sort of very consistent with what we all try to do here. I've been here, my, this is my first job out of graduate school. I've been here since 1979. Of the people who got the Nobel Prize since I was in economics, the only one who I haven't had as an, a colleague uh, was Milton Friedman. He just left when I came. When I started as an assistant professor in the business school, I mean, the people in the business school were very nice to me and gave me lots of help. But the economics department, particularly Bob Lucas, who won the economics mm. prize, and uh, Jose Shankman, who's a potential future winner, uh, were you know very, very helpful to me. So it was a broad community of economists. It's such a special thing to create an environment where people feel secure and collaborative and are really taking each other seriously. Is it a conscious effort to do that, or is it just self-sustaining? Once you have it, all you have to do is not lose it. It just magically renews itself. It does magically re renew itself as long as you realize how unusual and special it is. So within the Graduate School of Business, which was the name of this place before David Booth gave us some money, we renamed it, the finance group was basically run by Merton Miller and Gene Fama. When I came, there were like three other senior faculty besides them and two junior faculty. So it was a very small group when I joined. And both Fama and Miller were like always in the office, did almost no outside consulting, just basically tried to train students, teach MBAs and do their scholarly research. So that was a very good culture, which I sort of picked up and valued a lot. So I've you know been here a long time. I try to make sure that that culture persists. The other part of our culture is we occasionally, every decade or so, will make an outside offer to someone who already has tenure elsewhere. But most of our faculty here were hired when they were assistant professors, either right out of graduate school or a year or two later. The treatment effect of our culture is pretty big on, on most of us. It's a fun place to work. <laughs> it sounds it. <laughs> and a productive place, too. Douglas Diamond was born in 1953 and raised in Chicago. He describes himself as an overconfident high school student who took a course on capitalism and enjoyed it, but dismissed economics as a career and decided to study biology at Brown University. Economics seemed like it was pretty interesting, but seemed sort of easy. I thought maybe you could do more important things in the human genome and that kind of stuff. So then I got to college and took a molecular biology course, and I, I didn't like the course. So two weeks into the course, I realized this was not a great course. I hadn't changed majors yet, but I decided to drop that course and then look for a course that met at more or less the same hour. <laughs> so I found an intermediate microeconomics course, and I knew some economics. Since I'd had an introductory, I could take intermediate. So I took that course, and it was a truly amazing course from a professor Brown, who had no relation to the university Brown, but uh, Professor John Brown. And it wasn't mathematical, but it was super high level. There's this part of, a very advanced part of, of economics that's called Arrow-Debreu theory. It's general equilibrium where you think about uncertainty as a type of composite commodity of a lot of different goods that pay off in different states of the world. It's one of the most advanced things. So this was in this freshman course. And I said, this economic stuff, is it, it's still 
pretty easy for me, but it seems a little less trivial than just like supply and demand, which sort of seemed a bit obvious after you've, you know, been around the market a little bit. So I took that course. And then the second half of the course was a more mathematical course that used a lot of calculus and things and did some interesting applications of economics, like where different companies would locate in different parts of the world, location theory that was sort of linear programming almost. So I said, okay, this economic stuff has more depth than I would have guessed. And it seemed comparatively easy to me. I was comparatively good at it. So once I thought about it as me being comparatively good rather than it being comparatively simple, I decided it was a good major. So sometime in my sophomore year, I decided to switch the major. What difference a good course makes and a good teacher. Oh, yeah, that was an amazing course. This brings me to a clip I'd like to play you of um, Ben Bernanke speaking at the banquet for the Nobel Prize Award. A perennial question is whether economics is really a science. It's true, for example, that we economists can't do large-scale experiments, although neither can evolutionary biologists or seismologists. (laughs) However, one thing we surely have in common with physics, chemistry, and the rest is that ignorance or misapplication of basic principles can result in enormous damage. In economics, that damage takes the form of financial crises and economic depressions. So (laughs) given what you just said about your courses at Brown, I guess there's no question for you, economics is definitely a science. It is, and particularly in the dimension that the quote from Ben just referred to, that one reason economics is important as a science is because humans actually use data from the economy to make policy, government policy, business policy, personal decision policy. And one needs some kind of a model to figure out what data should tell you about the world. So one role of one type of economics, um, economic theory, especially applied economic theory, which is the kind that I do, is to give people of all sorts, including government policymakers, a little paradigm when they see data to think about what might be happening. Sometimes they need multiple things that could be going on so they can look at the comparative merits of each explanation in a given bit of data. So since people make decisions, we need some theories and models. And they need to be for things like policymakers in monetary policy or financial stabilization, the kind of stuff that I focus on need to be something you can sort of integrate quickly into your head without running something through the computer. If you're going to see a crisis like we saw in 2008, you need to say, what is this telling me? So that's important. And then the other thing that they talked about how, like seismologists, we can't just have a bunch of earthquakes to see what would happen. You know, we don't really want to have a big depression to find out how you'd fight the next one. The other thing that economics needs to do and has been very successful in the last 30 years is figuring out how do you use data to figure out what's causing something else? This thing of a causal inference, the people who won one year ago, all three of them had a huge impact on coming up with methods for economists and non-economists to look at data about the world and see, can we really say that this other feature that happened in the world is the cause of what happened? Or can we just say, no, no, they just happened together for some kind of common reason? So that's, I think, why economics is potentially a science, is that we need to have a way to get 
views of the world that are distilled enough so that the human brain can use them in real time. I think economics is getting closer and closer to being a respectable science. Even when we were not the most respectable science, we still needed to be keep pushing forward because the topic actually matters, you know, to the planet, to the humans on the planet, and to the animals on the planet. One of the things that turned Douglas Diamond onto economics was the book, The Monetary History of the United States by Milton Friedman and Anna J. Schwartz. Written in 1963, it argued that sound monetary policy is necessary for economic stability. The authors pointed to the consequences of the American Federal Reserve's actions and inaction during the Great Depression as an example of why it's important to have effective monetary policies in place. But the wonderful thing about that book is it was written in the style of economic history where they described what actually happened, they showed the actual data, they had transcripts of the meetings of members of the Federal Reserve when they were thinking about monetary policy. So they described what actually happened, they showed the data, and then they gave their interpretation. No statistical analysis, just the data, and then their words and their descriptions of what happened. So it was very transparent. You could form your own view of what it meant, and you could see how their argument really seemed to fit the data. But the beautiful thing is because they showed you the unanalyzed data, you could put your thumb on the scale wherever you, you wished. That's so rare. There's not too much policy analysis that's that descriptive of what happened and what the people were talking about when they made the decisions, what data they saw, just a lot about human decision-making and how a narrative that could be completely incorrect but sort of looked right could make people make bad decisions, how they could use it for persuading people who shouldn't be persuaded because the persuader was incorrect. It had the impression on me as a, as a kid in college that policymaking was important. Understanding these models, like what was causing what in the world, was important. And that people disagreed to a huge, surprising extent about what was causal and what wasn't, even to that day, you know, even in the, in the 1970s when I was reading the book. So when you were a graduate student at Yale, you and Phil Dibvig were both students of Stephen A. Ross. Yep. And uh, you told me in the telephone interview how you met in his waiting room because he had this strange policy of not making appointments with his students. So you had to just sit outside his office waiting for him to do you the favour of opening the door and letting you in. Yes. So, so he was, in addition to being an amazing scholar and advisor, he also ran some business and consulting things. Some people would just leave town and go on the road and not be around for the students. So Steve would try to do his business work in his office. So he would always be around in case someone needed him in an, in an emergency basis or he was you know, willing to talk. So Steve would be in the office pretty much every day. Some days he wouldn't have time to talk. Other days he'd have two or three minutes. Occasionally, if I or Phil or other students would have something interesting and urgent, you might talk to Steve for an hour. Hmm. And Steve would rarely read anything. You just have to go talk to him and write it on this blackboard and have him think about it in real time. Thankfully, he was the quickest person in the economics profession or certainly in the top two or three. Uh, I think I still might be in graduate school if it wasn't for Steve because I was sort of <laughs> barking up the wrong tree in the method. I was trying to make things so general that they were unable to be solved by someone like me in the model. You know, the math model was just too hard. And it was, even if I'd solved it, it was too complicated for people to understand. 
he convinced me to simplify things until I could understand exactly what was going on, and the math was, like, totally transparent. And what did he see in you that made him take you on? Not exactly sure. So I had an agenda, and I had problems I was interested in, and I'd had some incomplete tries at trying to get models that had the ideas that I had. So I think that was unusual to already have an agenda as as a third-year PhD student. And then my longest suit is thinking quickly and um, talking about it. I'm better in, in talking than I am in writing. He was good at both, but he was also quick and a talker. So we could talk about ideas, what I was trying to do and what I thought the economic model might be before I wrote any equations down. And he was quick enough that he could sort of, we could both picture the equations that would be there without actually writing them down. So he was good at listening to what I wanted to try to do and then linking it to what was already out there. And actually, in the period after, I was the teaching assistant for the PhD course in macroeconomics that James Tobin taught. And I managed to convince the top three or four students from that class to go become students of Steve Ross. Uh, And they all did, and they've all become fairly famous economists and thanked me many times. (laughs) I want to ask a little bit about the relationship with Phil Dibvig. Together in 1983, 40 years ago, you published this seminal paper on bank runs, which has been so influential. Something about your partnership leading to the Diamond-Dibvig model was very special. Let's hear Phil Dibvig talking about you for a second. Yeah, Doug is an amazing guy, and he's he's a great co-author. We worked so hard to make the paper simple, but during the time we were writing it, it could be somewhat intense. It was never unpleasant. You know, one of us would say, well, we should assume this. And the other one would say, no, that'll be too complicated. We can never solve that. And the other one would say, well, how about if we um, try that? And then we'd say, no, no, that's going to throw away all the economics, and back and forth. And I'm hoping that as a result for economists that they'll find that to be a simple paper. Well, the paper did indeed get a very good reception. But what made it so productive to be working together? So we had similar training. We're both students of Steve's. We had very different approaches to doing research. Phil's main research was in the pricing of financial assets and how money management would work. You know, mine was thinking about banks and private information and markets. So we came at with a different background, but similar training and different skills. And like Steve, Phil is also very quick and very verbal. We talked about pretty much the whole model before we wrote any equations down. That's not the way most people work. Most people write some equations down, stare at them for a while, try to figure out what it means. I've done that many, many, many times. But this issue of thinking, so we decided we're going to write a paper about how the finance can be viewed differently when you do it via the lens of game theory than just competitive supply and demand economics. That's how we started the project. And we quickly decided that thinking about bank runs was the place to begin. So, Adam, what is a bank run? A bank run is when lots of people who have money deposited in a bank decide they want their money back at the same time. And the bank doesn't actually have the money available to give them. 
Happily enough, most people only encounter bank runs in fiction. For instance, in the film that tends to get shown at Christmas, It's a Wonderful Life. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. You're you're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. the, The money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house, that's right next to yours, and in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others. Suddenly, if the bank can't meet its obligations, it's in crisis. And one of the implications of the work of Douglas Diamond and Phil Dipfick in their model is that it's very important to prevent bank runs happening, because if they happen, it creates a very damaging financial instability across the whole financial system. Does the diamond digvid model make any recommendations? I suppose the answer to that is no. The model doesn't make implications. What it does is helps you understand what is happening. And I suppose that's the fundamental point of their work, that it allows policymakers to get a better grasp of what's going on in the banking system and therefore be in a better position to avoid having bank runs happen in the future. That is the idea, at least, And it's been put into practice because the Diamond-Dibvig model has been central to the thinking of central bankers who, in the main, think that it's very important to avoid bank runs. The counter-argument is that it's better to let banks fail rather than prop them up. So there's still quite a lot of debate about this. Most central bankers seem to think that the path is clear and that uh, it's very important to keep banks afloat when you can. But certainly there are people who disagree. And let's listen to what Douglas Diamond has to say about his critics. Some people who don't like the government ever doing anything said this was, you know, we we are the devil because we convinced them to not let all the banks in the world fail, which would have been good for the economy. That's a slightly mean characterization of what other people think. (laughs) Right. There, There are people who said, you know, the Federal Reserve and Ben Bernanke did the wrong thing. They shouldn't have intervened into AIG. They should have just let them fail. And maybe if Goldman Sachs had gone down to, that would have been a good thing. I don't agree with any of that. Just like we don't want to have earthquakes to find out how earthquakes work. We don't want to have, you know, financial crises that are bigger than they need to be to find out whether we really need to stop them, nip them in the bud. Let me ask you about the age you were when you did this work. Published 40 years ago, You mentioned already that at the University of Chicago, both young and old contribute, that you don't stop producing work as you get older. Is there something very special about being a young person in, in this case, the field of finance that allows you to do things differently, think of new approaches in a special way? Or is it really just that the time can be right any time you could be young or old? Well, I think the two things that were special about that period, financial economics was a very young field. So like the oldest important paper at that point was Medigliani and Miller, which was 1958. Most of the stuff on pricing of financial assets was the mid-1960s. So it was a young field. And I think people had realized that we needed to expand. There were lots of questions that we knew we didn't know the answer to. And the University of Chicago was right in the center of the finance revolution. And my senior colleagues, particularly Gene Fama and Mert Miller, were very open to thinking about, you know, new, more nuanced ways of doing this. And the fact the group was so small 
meant that I got lots of attention from the senior faculty because I was the only assistant professor and there were two associate professors, John Ingersoll and George Constantinides. So I had a lot of attention. We're a much bigger profession and a much bigger group today. I think the University of Chicago, because we're very open, we don't hire senior faculty except very rarely because our business model is hiring young people and turn them into famous scholars or hope they become famous scholars as they get older. It's a good place to do research. But I think I got unusually lucky. I got that environment when it was tiny. The field was tiny. Most of the questions were unanswered. Or if we had answers, they were like completely incorrect answers. So like Fisher Black wrote a paper on banking and interest rates in a world without money. And uh, he basically said, well, now that we have efficient financial markets, the traditional things that banks do are no longer needed because we can learn all of the information by looking at the stock price, blah, blah, blah. So we don't need to do financial accounting anymore. We don't need to monitor. So that was a paper he wrote in 75. I read that paper, and then I read Friedman and Schwartz, and I said, no, no, that's the wrong way to think about it. Banks are still important, even though financial markets are remarkably efficient. Most of the ideas we have around in finance right now are either pretty correct, or the other ones we all realize what's wrong with them and, and why we can't do a little better. And uh, we don't have the tools or the ideas to, to fix the things that are just not correct in our profession. So the advice to the young is seek out new fields if you can. Students ask me, what, what should I work on? Should I look in the literature and see what's the next advance we need to move on? And I say, no, look for the stuff we don't understand at all. And you might be better off, instead of reading the Journal of Finance, you might be better reading the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal so stuff in the world that we don't understand. And then ask, in the paradigm of economics, what's our explanation? Yeah. What's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this explanation? I think that's much more promising area to get a great idea. Now, the trouble is you often, particularly in a mature field, if we don't know the answer, it's probably because the right answer is quite difficult rather than because we're not looking in the right place. That's one reason it was easier for me because we didn't even know how to ask the question of like, how do you optimally design a financial system? Because that requires this stuff called mechanism design that won a bunch of, of economics prizes. So that was a new tool that no one had ever put onto thinking about finance before. So both my dissertation paper, Financial Intermediation Delegated Monitoring, and the paper with Phil, Bank Run Deposit Insurance Liquidity, both of those are sort of mechanism design papers at some level. And, you know, I was sort of the first person to try that approach on this question. And lo, it produced you know, without intending to, it produced the two main contracts that people use in finance. If I, you know, tried that 10 years later, uh, somebody else would have done it first. It wasn't obvious, but the answer turned out to be sort of obvious once I figured out what it was. What do you do for relaxation? Spend time with my family, my wife in particular, because my kids are grown and live on the opposite coasts of the United States. Our main thing, which uh, we've still managed to do a bit of in this post-October period where my time became a bit scarce, we go for nice walks along the lakefront in the city of Chicago where we live. We like to go on hiking trips and vacations. We actually took one week of vacation, which was already been planned in January. We went to Mexico for a week uh, and enjoyed things down there. Uh, didn't do any work on my speech in that period, which means I'm still finishing it today. That's what we like to do. And I like to go see my children and my grandchildren. And music, I guess, is also important because I heard on the grapevine that you were a DJ in college. Yes. Uh, so WBRU in Providence. <laughs> uh, that was the Brown University station, which was the commercial station and the number one radio station from 18 to 34 uh, ratings at, at the time. 
radio is less of a thing for music and young people these days. They're now internet-only station. But I spent a lot of my time in college uh, listening to music, playing music on the radio, um, helping to take care of the station uh, and its, its music. So I still listen to a lot of music. In fact, I listen to some music from the 1960s and 70s that I used to listen to. I'd spend more time listening to classical music, particularly it's a bit more relaxing than rock and roll or German space rock or things like that. You mentioned your children living far away, but your daughter is an economics professor. She's an economics professor uh, at the Stanford Business School. She's an amazing economist. She won the Elaine Bennett Prize for the best female economics under a certain age just this last year. She won like a week after your people called and told me that I won the economics prize. So we had a good week that week in our family. What a diamond family week. Wow. And my son, who's a bit younger, he's an assistant professor of finance at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He's doing incredibly well as well. So you know, my wife, Elizabeth Lee, is also an economist. So there's some memo on diversification of human capital that we never received. <laughs> but it's it's worked out okay for us, nonetheless. <laughs> On the question of women in economics, the track record of the Economic Sciences Prize to women has been very, very poor. Just two female laureates out of all that have been awarded. But what do you have to say on the subject of women in economics? So there historically have been very, very few women in economics. Given it's a social science, it's a bit surprising. Among the social sciences, it's the sort of the least social. It's more about you know, money and business to a certain extent. But then it's, you know, my daughter is a labor and urban economist. There are plenty of things that are very important to the well-being of humankind that are, you know, studied in economics, particularly after my late colleague Gary Becker sort of extended the breadth of, of what economics does. It's a very competitive, tough profession. We're a little too tough in seminars and things. There are plenty of women out there who are overqualified to be economists. They just don't tend to go into our field very much because they either don't understand the interesting things that we do or they understand the obnoxious things that, that are, we do as colleagues. That if we can get rid of the obnoxious things that we do as colleagues about being too aggressive in seminars and not understanding that men and women may have different weights on how much they put into childcare when their children are young, and that doesn't affect their long-run productivity, which I think was a major problem in the, in the profession, uh, which is not completely gone, but it's much better. I think those are the issues, I think. I see just in our applicant pool, the PhD program, there are many more women, particularly super well-qualified women, than there were 20 years ago. Mm. So I think it's getting better, but I think even today, economics is toward the bottom of all technical professions in the fraction of women in our profession. Well, you obviously love love your field so deeply. You're a good advocate for it already. I suppose the platform of the Prize in Economic Sciences gives you even more visibility to go out there and pull people in from, yeah. pull in women, pull in yeah. people from diverse backgrounds. Yeah. No, no, I, I completely, I'm on that page. I completely <laughs> agree with that. And I'm thinking I'd like to get more people who are not considering science in general. So economics, I'm particularly you know, a fan of economics. Getting people who think about things in a different and broader way is particularly important in a policy-oriented science like economics is. The fact that there are very few, I don't know, African-Americans in this profession 
And there's all kinds of policy that affects everybody, including African-Americans, means that where there's a whole set of policy biases that we don't see, we have our biases, but we don't see them in the profession. The other people have their biases. If we could hear the views of those people, we could all understand everybody's implicit assumptions and how they're thinking about the world in a much better way. Getting more really good people to go in the profession who are different from the ones today is really important in economics. The way you describe the working environment, the collaborative working environment at the University of Chicago, who would not want to be part of that? It just sounds gorgeous. <laughs> it's, it's a fun place to work. One of the things that I try to do is keeping our culture alive is make sure that our business model continues to be hire young people and turn them into successful older people. Some economics departments hire young people for low-cost teaching of undergraduates, don't mentor them much, and then very few of them get tenure, and they often drop to not as good schools as they could have got jobs from when they came out of graduate school. When you're into that setup, then you have to just hire senior people, and you hire them after they've done their work, and then many of them retire at that point. So, so we, don't want to, we don't want to get into that. We're, we're far from that. It's been a, an enormous pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Douglas Diamond, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Cardin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're in the mood for more listening from laureates with a connection to the University of Chicago, check out our earlier episodes with Richard Thaler or Paul Romer or Roger Myerson or David Card or Andrea Gez or Frank Wilczek. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 